ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, FP Playlist listeners. This is Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy. For this week's playlist, we're featuring the latest interview from FP Live, our magazine's forum for live journalism, where we discuss world affairs with the greatest minds and experts. Take a listen. Hello, and welcome to FP Live, Foreign Policy Magazine's forum for live journalism. I'm Amelia Lester, FP's executive editor. Russia's war in Ukraine has plunged to new depths in the last week. The IMF is now saying it has caused the worst food crisis since the Great Recession of 2008. Foreign Policy's fall print issue dropped just yesterday, and it focuses on the world's food shortage and ways to solve it. For today's program, I have the World Food Program's chief economist, Arif Hussain, and an ex-farm worker and crop scientist, Sarah Tabor, who will join us in just a moment to discuss how we ended up in this current crisis and ways we can fix it. But first, some ground rules. If you've attended one of these before, you know how it works. If it's your first time with us, FP Live is where we convene experts and policymakers to discuss world affairs. Subscribers get to ask questions too, which I sometimes select or at least use to inform my line of questioning. Write in on the comments box and you can also read lots of related content on our site. On to our discussion today. The war in Ukraine has taken a turn for the worse. Russian President Vladimir Putin was badly humiliated late last week when a strategic bridge that connected Crimea and Russia was rocked by a massive explosion. Russia retaliated on Monday morning with a barrage of missiles launched at central Kiev for the first time in months, along with other key Ukrainian cities. The war, which has now shaken the world to its core for over seven months, has caused the prices of fertilizer and food to skyrocket. We are now in the worst global food crisis since 2008, and it's putting the livelihoods of 345 million people in danger. While the entire world is dealing with the ripple effects of the war and the food shortages that have been caused by it, the worst impact is felt mostly in low-income countries. These depend on imports from Ukraine and Russia. But the roots of this crisis, as we'll learn today, extend back even further. So with me to discuss how we got here and, more importantly, ways in which we can get out of the current crisis, I have two great experts. Arif Hussein is the Chief Economist and the Director of the United Nations World Food Program's Research Assessments and Monitoring Division. Also with us is Sarah Tabor. She is a crop scientist, author, and ex-farm worker with 25 years experience in the food system. She runs a farm consulting business and a small farm in Fayetteville, North Carolina. 
Thank you both to both of you for making the time for this and welcome to FP Live. Arif, let's start with you. Food and energy shocks have caused nations to turn inwards. With the current food shortage pushing millions of people into hunger, more nations are realizing they must become more self-dependent. Give us the lay of the land, if you will, because it's not just the war in Ukraine. How did we end up here? Thanks, Amelia. Thanks for having me on this program. Let me just say that uh, if it was just war in Ukraine, it would be bad enough. But it came on top of COVID. Hmm. And, uh, and what we have seen is that even before that, because of this famous three C's, uh, which is conflict, climate, and COVID, things have gone from bad to worse. 2019, end of 2019, we had about 135 million people who were in hunger crisis or worse situation. During COVID, that number jumped to 276 million people in hunger crisis. And then because of the war in Ukraine, that number again jumped to 345 million people today in hunger crisis. Now what's worse is that out of this 345 million, there are about 50 million people, not in one, two or 10 countries, but in 45 countries who are in hunger emergencies, meaning one step away from famine. There are actually people in famine as we speak in places like Somalia, places like Yemen. Now, it's easy to see why we got there or how we got there. It is the conflict, it is the climate, it is the economic downturns because of COVID. Um, so the problem statement is quite clear. When you think of those three C's that contributed to the current shortage of food and you look back at the past seven plus months, how much has the conflict that is Russia invading Ukraine worsened the food crisis? If you could break it down in numbers, that would be great. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, so for us, our projections show that about, let's say about 50 million people are in hunger crisis because of the conflict the war in Ukraine. So this was the thing, right? So it was 135 million that got up to 276, then 283, and then 345. So it is a big shock. Can but, you unpack why that is? What, why exactly yeah, does the war lead to this? Sure, because you know, if you look at Ukraine, and if you look at Russia, there's, that is like the global food basket. Okay? Um, so whenever, and, and, and one thing which people don't realize is that our export markets are very, very thin, meaning less than 10 countries account for exports of things like wheat, corn, soybean, rice, 80, 90%, okay? And the stocks of these same commodities are even in lesser countries, maybe five countries account for 90%, right? So whenever there is a shock in any one of these countries, you see the repercussions of those shocks, you know, thousands of miles away. This is what we are seeing. Now, here's the thing. If it was just about food, it would be one thing. But when it is about food and fuel and fertilizer, right? It is something which is, uh, which is out, of this, out of this world, frankly. And, and I think that's, that's what people need to, to understand. Uh, and you know, worse yet, 
right now, as bad as it is, it is an affordability crisis, meaning food is there, it's not in the right place, or it's not at the right price for people to afford. Now, imagine, you know, if on a good day you were spending 50, 60% of your income on food, there's little upside you know, to do anything else. So then if the prices rise, what do you do? Where do you go? Right? Now, the problem here is that right now, because of the combination of three things, meaning all three high prices, and because of how much debt there is in the world, you know, by the way, 60% of low-income countries right now are in debt distress or high risk of debt distress. Okay. And then if you combine that on top of that with the strong dollar, because remember, all of these commodities are, are dollar denominated. It is a toxic combination for these poor countries. If they have to import, if they're poor, if they're under debt, if they have to import their food, if they have to import their fertilizer, if they have to import their fuel, they're in trouble. And IMF, the report you, you, you just mentioned, that was an analysis of 48 countries. Just their, what we will call balance of payment, but import bill at the end of the day, if you wanted to import food and fuel, uh, fertilizer, 22, $9 billion. Right, so, so that's that's where we are. This is the pain and it comes on top of COVID and people have not recovered, economically speaking, out of COVID, imagine tourism. But bigger yet, governments have not recovered, especially the small ones. You know, about $26 trillion was spent by governments big and small in less than 18 months. That's 30% of the global GDP dealing with the disease and its economic consequences. That explains why left, right, and center, you are seeing devaluation of currencies. I think there are more than two dozen countries who have lost 15% or even 25% of the value. And frankly, these are not only the poorest of the poor. These are also middle-income countries who are going through this. So this is what we are dealing with. And to me, when you put all of this together, so my God, then, you know, how do you know what is happening out there? You start looking at food inflation. More than 50 countries right now have food inflation of upwards of 15% year on year. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sarah, I want to turn to you for a minute. You contributed the lead piece to our print issue on the food crisis, and you argued there is actually plenty of food to go around, but it's going to the wrong places. So explain to us where is most of that food going, and more importantly, where is it not going, and why is that? Sure. Um, Dr. Hussein made a really great point where he pointed out how much of the world's food supply comes from really five bread baskets, and they happen largely to belong to wealthy countries. When we talk about this food crisis and how it suddenly emerged, it didn't, right? You don't wind up in a situation where this many poor countries are this poor and this depend on food imports overnight, <laughs> you know? So um, is it all right if we talk a little bit about how that food situation came to be, why we have an entire global food system that's based on five bread baskets belonging mostly to wealthy countries? I feel like that's worth exploring a little bit. Shall we go there? Yeah, tell us what, who the five bread baskets are and why can't they move the food to the places that don't have food? 
it's not that they can't, they just don't want to. So, uh, <laughs> and when I say they, what we're dealing with is a really complex system of a lot of different parties, right? We have uh, farmers uh, who own the land um, and operate the farms. We have agribusiness is kind of like the classic scapegoat for everything that goes wrong but they're only one part of this and all parts of it are, are bad. Um, we have government policy, which is another thing. And then we also have commodities and futures markets, which played a big role in the 2008 food crisis. And then also this one. So we have several different parties involved here. And, and um, I, I think it's really easy to point to the folks who ship grain. And not, I'm not saying they're not guilty of some stuff. That's They're definitely in the pile. Um, but I think they kind of become the place that we blame. And so we don't look at all these other parts of the very broken food system. Um, so with that little preface, um, if you're a wealthy country, well, let, sorry, let's go back. So the, the breadbaskets are North America. You know, we have the Midwest, we have the Great Plains, uh, we have Canada to some extent in that as well. So that's one large grain exporting region. We have Australia, traditionally a very big wheat exporting region. Um, Brazil has really started to go gangbusters on soy. Argentina, to some extent, wheat and uh, soy as well. So that's a big grain growing region is South America as well. Um, India has recently started to export large quantities of wheat because their agricultural programs actually are just very productive and they were starting to have a crisis of how we're going to store all this wheat. So they were able to export a lot of it during this crisis and really come in clutch for everybody, which was cool. Um, South Africa, to some extent, also a big wheat exporter. So you really have a limited number of what we might call bread baskets, you know, and of course you've got the Black Sea as well. Um, I don't want to give people the impression that international food trade is bad. Uh, I don't think that's the case at all. You're always going to have crop failure somewhere. And so you do want some redundancy and you do want, you do want extras growing somewhere else that you can move around freely. So um, I find that sometimes people take it to the extent of, well, we only have to eat locally and <laughs> you're like, you know, grow food locally and, and food trade itself is bad. And that's not what we're doing here. We're talking about the context and why food trade means everyone eats from these five bread baskets. Um, so Obviously, it's easy to grow food in these places, right? It's very easy to grow grain in large quantities and ship it out. Um, but that's not the only factor here. There are lots of other ways to grow food. Um, one of the things I mentioned in my article is fisheries. Um, there's a saying, food comes from farms. Not true. Uh, for much of human history, people got most of their protein from fisheries rather than agriculture, right? Um, people getting most of their protein from eating land-based livestock like ch uh, chicken, beef, pork. That's fairly recent. That's something, um, I mean, people have always eaten those things, but getting most of your protein from that as opposed to salt cod or, you know, freshly caught fish, that's a pretty new innovation. That's kind of a 20th century thing, right? Um, and it really originated in the Midwestern breadbasket is kind of where the, the market for that originated. Um, Sarah, let me just interrupt you there because we have limited time and, and go to Arif on that question of diversifying our food sources. Why is it hard for us to do that? And how can we encourage more countries to go that route of, of eating from a greater variety of food sources? Well, you know, this is one thing which, which puzzles me because um, when we look at diversification as an issue, it's not a new issue, right? Mm -hmm. In 2008, we had the same problem. In 2011, you know, 2008 food and fuel crisis. In 2011, we had the same problem, and now we have it again. the The problem is that, you know, um, solutions essentially take more time, and they take resources. So there's no such thing as an overnight solution to these things. It's not a week. It's not a month. Even it's not one year, right? 
So when there is a problem, everybody focuses on this and says, no, 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 single source dependence is no, no good. Diversification is needed. We need to grow, you know, strategic, we need to have strategic reserves. We need to have buffer stocks, things like that. But that all costs money and it requires political will. So the problem is that as soon as the, the conflict goes away or the problem goes away, people go back to doing priorities change. And we are time and again, we are in the same situation. And then we spend thousand times more and people pay economically, but they also pay with their lives. Imagine 21st century, we are talking about people, men, women, children dying of hunger. There's something fundamentally wrong in this and in a world of plenty. You know, here's the thing with, with Sarah is saying, we produce more feed, food to feed 9 billion people as we, right now, it's, it's possible. If we look at our food waste, you know, both before, you know, before retail as in harvest and, and all of that, and then on the plate, it's about a third. So what we need to do somehow, because, you know, as we see the ramifications of bad things, you know, something bad happened in one place and we feel the pain everywhere else, we need to start thinking about solutions in the same way. We need to stop saying, oh, it's not my problem. You know, in a globalized world, believe it or not, it is your problem. It doesn't matter where it happens. And exactly. yes. when we start looking at it like that and we make these problems our own, and we start to see the cost, not just the moral cost, but the economic cost and the political cost of not doing anything, cost of inaction, we start to see change in the world. People say, what, what needs to be done? We know what needs to be done. It's a question of doing it. So let's just please be more coordinated and actually get the thing done. So let's talk a little bit about how, what are the solutions that we can be more coordinated on? Sarah, in your piece for FP, you argued that industrialized agriculture benefits only a select few. And, and a key idea of yours is that we must treat food policy as a public utility rather than a corporate endeavor. Can you tell me what concrete steps can be taken to move towards that kind of idea? Right. So what I said was we need to treat food as a public utility, not a giveaway for landowners is what I said. So um, to, to a lot of what Dr. Hussein was talking about. So there are a lot of things that we know we need to do. So I want to talk about why we just can't seem to be able to achieve them, because I think that's really important for understanding the political push we need to make here. Uh, wealthy countries who have these breadbaskets benefit from making everyone else dependent on them. The U.S., um, you know, Australia, those were colonized by countries with the intent of, you know, making a lot of economic gain, right? So now you have, you know, their successor countries, United States, Australia, to some extent, South Africa as well, a lot of these breadbasket countries. Um, found that getting other countries dependent on them for food makes those poorer countries very agreeable trade partners. It's easy to win trade wars because if you have a conflict, you can just say, well, we'll cut you off of the cheap food. That makes it very easy for wealthy countries to access these, uh, these smaller countries' natural resources. That's why they do it. That's why you see so much dependence uh, on, on food exports in these poorer countries. It's not an accident. Um, there is a lot of planned dependence it seems like a good deal at first, because if you're a poor country, it's like, great, we can bring in this cheap food and it will free up our local labor and land for other things. Maybe crops that will make more money for export. 
um, free up people for industrialization. And to some extent that's true, but when it gets to the point of you're completely dependent on exports from a few places, it's not healthy, right? So that's the international reason for it, right? That's what wealthy governments get out of this. But there's also a really important domestic political dimension of this for wealthier countries. So let's say, for instance, you're the United States. That's where I'm in. That's just the context I know the best. You're in the United States and one day, just overnight, we do all these things that we know are going to free up a lot of food for people, right? We end biofuels uh, based on ethanol because carbon-wise, they're not a win and uh, they just waste a lot of food. We reduce meat consumption so we're not using grain for feed and we we help other, like we get, we let other countries build their food systems to the point where they don't need our exports anymore, right? What happens to American farmers when all that demand evaporates? What happens? A whole lot of them become redundant overnight, don't they? So here's something that surprises most people is the median American farmer is a millionaire. How, how kindly do millionaires take to be made obsolete overnight? <laughs> the mind boggles. That's why we can't fix the food system. These, the United States and a lot of other colonial countries got their start by conquering governments, seizing land from indigenous people, and giving it away to colonists. It's, it was giveaways to political supporters, right? So their descendants and the people who kind of bought into that system over time are still here. So there's this political part of the puzzle that's really hard to solve. Uh -huh. um, this is on wealthy. So when we treat it as an issue of like, we need to give these people to eat a more diversified system of crops. I feel like that's kind of useless. I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to eat cereal made of corn, covered with milk made of corn and sweetened with corn. We don't have the food system because people wanted that. We yeah. have the food system we have because it works for landowners. Sarah, let's put a pin in that and then move to another important component of this discussion, I think, um, which also came out in the print issue, which is focused on the fertilizer war and how reduced access to fertilizer can dramatically cut food output and devastate economies further. Are, is the World Food Program involved in helping countries gain more access to fertilizer? What are you seeing on this front and how are you helping? Well, we, we were saying a lot about, about fertilizer because what we are worried about is that today's affordability crisis, what I was talking about earlier, um, does not turn into tomorrow's availability crisis because we just didn't have enough fertilizer to grow food. Because that would essentially mean prices uh, going even further up and, and, and that would create actual shortages because it won't just impact the bread baskets, it would impact countries. And, and remember exports is only, or imports is only short, you know, small part of what is consumed in many, 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 pretty much every country. So, so what we are focusing on is a few things. On the advocacy side, we are saying like, you know, like grain needs to come out of uh, the, 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 the Black Sea as it is coming, the Ukrainian grain coming out through the Black Sea Initiative, which is a, which is a positive and it has brought prices down. We also need to see fertilizer coming out of Russia. We also need to see raw materials for fertilizer coming out. And why I say that is because if you take Europe, uh, you know, of the NPK, the three types of fertilizer, nitrogen is the biggest one, right? Uh, and, uh, and basically, nitrogen fertilizer that is produced, the vast majority of that is produced in Europe, which is about 70% again, which is not happening. Why it is not happening? Because the 
natural gas prices are so high and the supplies are so limited. So the plant after plant in Europe for natural gas is closed. You know, I think it's like more than half of plants are already closed. I think that is a pain point which is gonna affect not just now, but next year. Also, you know, it's, uh, you know, cropping is a seasonal thing, right? So Northern hemisphere, Southern hemisphere, uh, and, and it's time sensitive. So it's not only a matter of getting the fertilizer out, it is a matter of getting the fertilizer out on time, but it also has to be affordable, right? This is where, where we are suffering. And people will say, well, you know what, then we need other plants, other places need to produce fertilizer. Yes, uh, maybe even environmentally friendly fertilizer. Yes, but is it gonna to happen tomorrow? No, it's gonna take time. And we need to buy that time. And that, that is something which, uh, which we, need to, we need to worry about. We are talking about that. Also what we are doing is if, the government asks us to move the fertilizer. Remember, we have big supply chains. I mean, we move 4 million plus tons of food, so we can move fertilizer as well. We take those, that, uh, you know, that request from the government and try to find them a supplier, as well as actually try to move those commodities. But again, feed, food, fuel, fertilizer, particularly food and fertilizer are key, key, key needs of the time. And just to drill down on that for a second, what are your priorities at the World Food Program right now, given the three C's? Where are you investing most of your efforts? You know, our, our priorities, first and foremost, saving lives. You know, you like to say that, you know, when World Food Program is setting records, it's not a good thing for the world. And guess what? Last three years, record after record. 116 million in 2020, 128 million in 2021, 152 million planned in 2022. So off that, first and foremost, focus in countries where there are people who are a step away from famine, essentially, starving. 45 plus countries over just there. And then focus on making enabling conditions creating enabling conditions so uh, people are able to set, you know, stand on their two feet. One thing I wanted to say was that, you know, what I have learned is that, you know, we, we talk about humanitarian and development all the time. And to me, those are endpoints. So if you just do development, it doesn't work in most of the places. And this is why World Bank, likes of World Bank, IMF, they have developed what is called FCB, Fragility, Conflict and Violence Strategies. Uh, World Bank in 2020, IMF in 2022. Why? Because they know if, unless they deal with that, development is going to work. World Food Program, largest humanitarian agency, does the same thing in terms of creating this enabling environment. So both are moving towards the middle to essentially shake hands in the middle. So one, we are saving lives. And two, if people have reasons to die, we give them reasons to live. And I think that is something we all need to, to, to take to heart. We need to give people reasons to live than just, you know. I wanna ask you a little bit more about the specifics of that. As the chief economist at the World Food Program and with things changing so quickly, 
I'd like to ask you in terms of the money, how do you plan for the remainder of this year and for 2023 and the years ahead? How do you make the decision of where to put money? Yeah, that's that's the million dollar question. <laughs> uh, my God. You know, we, we, have, uh, we have operations effective. We are present in 120 plus countries. We have effective operations in about 80 countries. In each country, we know what is happening on the ground. We have a figure of people who will require assistance. But despite having record levels of money, you know, this year we will cross over 12 billion, which only five, six years ago was half of that. Despite that, our funding gap is 50%. Why? Because needs continue to balloon, to mushroom. One thing I want to say on that is, you know, United States, uh, has shown incredible leadership when it comes to global food insecurity and global food security. The, the, the money is coming out of the US both through the Ukraine budget but all uh, bill but also after that the, the generals that is excellent. There are other countries like Germany who have, who have also stepped up. but then there are more countries who could but they haven't yet. So who needs to step up? Well for me I mean you know you know, we are losing money on fertilizer. We are losing money on, on food. Let's just put it that way. But there are, there are windfalls on the oil side. So, so, so it, wouldn't it be great if, you know, Gulf countries stepped up and actually, you know, if they could only take care of their region, like the Yemens, the Syrias, the Sudans, the Afghanistans, that would free up enough resources for the rest, you know, for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. I think that is that is one of the messages which my 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 executive director David Beasley keeps on, you know, mentioning because it's it's so very necessary. One last thing is, people always say, "Oh, needs are always going up. When will they ever come down?" They will only come down if you address the root causes. Sort out the conflicts, please, because it is costing you as well. You Deal with the climate shock, you know, and then the needs will come down. It's not a, it's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. You mentioned David Beasley. I have to ask, his term is coming to an end as the head of the World Food Program. Who is up to replace him? And, and I have to ask, isn't this a precarious moment for the WFP to undergo these changes in its leadership? You know, this question is way above my pay grade, <laughs> but let me just say that at World Food Program, we are about 22,000 people. And a vast majority of them, literally everybody, would like to see David Beasley continue. Why? Because he is an incredible leader. He's a decent human being. And he has led this organization extremely ably in all these difficulties. And at this point in time, when we are not out of the words, changing leadership will have its consequences. It's not that the next person is, will not be good or anything of that sort, not at all. It's just that whoever new comes in, they have, a, let's say a learning curve of about two years. I worry that at this time, 
when the world is in such turmoil, probably the best thing would be, or my appeal, if I can say it that way, is if he can, if he can continue. Well, let's hope for the sake of the world that, that a replacement, if a replacement is found and, and, and they can do a good job, I think that the world would really benefit from that. This last question is from FP subscriber Luba Levin Banchik. An important question for anyone watching or interested in helping. I'm going to let you both take a stab at answering as, as quickly as you can. And it's a big question. Is there anything an ordinary citizen can do to help? What can they do? Arif, let's start with you. A lot. Uh, I think the difference between when I was growing up and when, you know, kids now are growing up uh, is media, communication, social media. Um, if uh, food waste is an issue, um, you know, we can, every one of us can do something about it. My slogan is buy less, buy often. You want to change consumer behavior? You, you want to change supply side? You change consumer behavior. Otherwise, it doesn't change, right? So, so, so for me, that um, energy shortage, shut the light out when you're going. Maybe don't take a hot shower for a day or two. Yeah. I mean, these are the small things which don't mean anything. Walk instead of driving in a car. And uh, in, in Europe, I mean, this is, this is very real, you know, it's like uh, we are looking at a winter coming and, uh, and this crisis, this energy crisis is front and center, whether you're a business, whether you're a household. And, and I think that is, that is one other thing I want to say just to, on, on Sarah's point stuck in my head. Um, Not putting all your eggs in one basket, also on the energy side, is a good lesson, which we have learned through this for Europe. And this is why there is a rethink needed on the energy policy side, on the agricultural policy side, not only from the environmental standpoint, but also from economic, which always is, but also political standpoint. If we don't do that, we are doing a disservice to our children. Sarah, those are great reminders. Thank you, Arif. Sarah, what can individuals do to help? Right. So kind of my larger project is working on, you know, if you're in a wealthier country that is kind of dominating the global food system, um, we need political will not only to help build other countries' food systems, but also kind of rein ours back to a, to a level that makes more sense for us. Um, the way we have this export dependent food system is also doing bad things for the United States, right? Uh, the problem is we have a political discourse that's made it kind of a national priority to, to keep it this way. We have slogans like feed the world, thank a farmer, right? And again, our, our you know, the US food system is made up of a lot of different parties, some of which I think we've decided it's okay to hate on, right? Corporations, food speculators. I think everybody can kind of agree that those are things that need to be reined in, but they're only part of the problem. The core of our political will problem in the United States is we've been raised to love farmers. Um, and I say this as someone who has a small farm, right? We're, we're not perfect. Uh, we're not better people than everybody else. Like that has always kind of puzzled me. We have this impression of uh, the farmers are just kind of like wholesomer and better than everyone else and, and deserve help. 
they're just people who own land. They don't, we don't owe them anything, <laughs> you know? And so that's something I kind of want to make really clear is that when we're talking political will to change the system, that means political will to not keep saving farmers. Um, and that's going to be, I think, the most difficult political hurdle because we're really raised from birth to kind of see them as folk heroes. Um, and they're just, they're just people who own property and use it to extract wealth from a lot of the world. And that's not a good idea. Um, we need to kind of stop being suckers for those slogans. Um, well, it's a very yeah. timely message ahead of the midterm. So um, thanks for that, yeah. Sarah. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Uh, Sarah Tabor and Arif Hussein, thank you so much for joining me today. It was so great to have you on FP Live. I learned a lot from both of you. You've been listening to the latest discussion from FP Live, foreign policy's platform for live journalism. If you're interested in learning more or want to watch the next FP Live, check out our website at foreignpolicy.com live. Thanks for listening to Foreign Policy's playlist. Our production team includes Tal Alroy, Laura Rosbrow-Tallam, Rosie Julin, and Maria Jimena Aragon. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill, or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers. And while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.